Again, I want to remind you, these are a great way. If you want to understand what it is that we believe as a church, what it is that represents orthodoxy, um, it is found in these catechisms, which you can find on the app or on the website. And the question for today on our Baptist Catechism is question number 47. Where is the obedience of faith given in summary form? And the answer, if you would read aloud with me. A summary form of the obedience of faith is given in the Ten Commandments. Amen. And now if you would, uh, turn in your copy of God's Word to Ecclesiastes in the ninth chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, where we're at today, our um, very interesting, very beneficial, very fruitful, um, and at times very challenging study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we come now to chapter 9. And if you don't have a Bible, it's no problem. We are going to have it up on the screen for you. We encourage you to follow along there. If you don't have a Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says this. But all this I laid to heart. Examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no reward, for the memory of them is gone. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Verse 11. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seems great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. 
Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are holy, and you are righteous, and you are good. And we come before you now, Lord, as sinners, as individuals who are certainly on our own right, by our own uh, standards, by our own deeds, not really good, not really righteous, not really worthy of coming into your presence, God. But yet because of Christ's work on the cross, here we are. And we have the joy to come into your presence. We have the joy to sit at your feet here today, to open up your word and to read and study and understand. And that is my prayer today, Lord, as we read, as we study, as we work through Ecclesiastes chapter 9. My prayer is that you would help us understand, you would help us to see clearly your word, you would help us to see clearly what it is you would have us to know in Ecclesiastes in the ninth chapter. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful today as we read your word and study, and that you would guide my words as I teach and as I speak. And to you, may the glory be. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Uh, so today, uh, whether we like it or not, our topic is a topic that no one really wants to talk about. It's a topic of debt. My title today uh, will give a little indication to that. Uh, my title is, Oh Death, Where Is Your Sting? And this is the topic of the, book of Ecclesi or of the chapter of Ecclesiastes that we're in here today, so therefore, we're going to talk about today. That's how this works. The, the topic of our text is the topic of our sermon. So here we are uh, discussing debt. But people, and we all recognize this, people don't like to talk about debt. People don't desire to, to get together and talk about dying, talk about death. Uh, we tend to do everything we can to avoid the topic, right? Or to make it easier by using euphemisms. But the fact of the matter remains, that's what we had to discuss today, uh, it is debt. Now for those of you who haven't seen, uh, or for those of you who have seen, rather, uh, the movie with Robin Williams called Patch Addicts. If you don't recognize it, this picture on the screen is a scene from that movie. Movie called Patch Adams. In this movie, it's a it's about a man uh, who desires to be a doctor and begins in med school and uh, and begins pursuing uh, medicine, pursuing the, the life of a doctor because of his desire to to heal people, his desire to to help people, not just uh, to cure people of diseases, but to give people a joy and a, and a quality in life. And, and he essentially goes out. This character, Patch Adams, makes it his mission to bring people joy in life, to increase their quality of life, both in their, their physical healing and medicine and, and also just in their, uh, in their joy and in their, uh, their needs and their, their mental needs, their desires, all of these things. And in one scene in this movie, there's this scene where, where Patch Adams encounters this, this one individual, this man who has received this uh, very tragic diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis. This man knows he's going to die. He's basically stuck in the hospital until he dies. He is on his deathbed. And he's angry about it. And he doesn't want to talk to anyone. He doesn't want to interact with people. Uh, he, the doctors and nurses that come to, to care for him and, and interact with them, he just treats them like garbage. He's angry at them. He yells at them. Uh, just doesn't. He's just angry at the world, angry at his situation, and wants everyone to know it. So Patch Adams sees this guy, and he, and he goes in to, to talk to him, not after being warned uh, by the nurses 
uh, that he shouldn't go in there. He goes in anyway. And, uh, and his first encounter with this gentleman is pretty tragic. The guy yells at him, grabs his shirt, and, and throws him and kicks him out of his room. And Robin Williams kind of shaken by the whole ordeal leaves and, and you know, says, well, that's that. But he comes back later in the movie. And the second time he comes back, he has a new strategy. In fact, he comes back dressed as you see him here. He comes dressed as an angel and comes to this guy's room. And, and the guy kind of opens his eyes to see this, this crazy guy standing there in, a, in an angel costume. And he comes with, with a different tactic, a tactic not to try to avoid death or avoid talking about what this guy knows is his reality, but instead addresses it directly. And he opens up, dressed like this, uh, he, he opens up the statement by saying, a preview of coming attractions. And then he proceeds to open up this book he has where he, he lists off all kinds of uh, words, euphemisms for death. He says this. He reads directly to this guy. Preview of coming attractions. Death. To die. To expire. To pass on. To perish. To peg out. To push up daisies. To push up posies. To become extinct. Curtains. Deceased. Demise. Departed and defunct. Dead as a doornail. Dead as a herring, dead as mutton, dead as nits. The last breath, paying a debt to nature, the big sleep, God's way of saying, slow down. And, and you're presented with this, this interaction. I mean, he just goes into this guy's room with this terminal illness and just says it. I mean, he just lays it out there like this. And as the guy begins to react, he raises a finger and you think he's about to just rip him a new one, yell at him, tell him to get out of his room. But instead, the guy begins to engage along with Patch, and he begins to say euphemisms as well. And they go back and forth, continuing to say different use of euphemisms for, for dying, uh, uh, to be a worm buffet, to blink for a long period of time, all these things. And, and the scene ends with, with laughter and Patch Adams saying, and if they bury you with your backside up, I have a place to park my bike. And that's kind of how the scene concludes, uh, with this interaction with this guy who has received this terminal illness. What Patch Adams does is he doesn't avoid the topic of death, but rather addresses it head on, because it is a reality. It is a reality not to be avoided, not to be ignored. That does us no good, whether you are in Christ or not. It does us no good to avoid the topic of death, but instead addresses it directly. Well, today, I want us to see that what this movie does uh, is that it does a good job of bringing up the topic of death, though it never really offers any hope in death, which is the sad part of the movie. But one thing that the movie does is it illustrates for us both the reality that all of us will die someday, makes that very clear, and also that people do not like to talk about death. People like to ignore it. They like to, to just push it to the back burner, to not talk about it. And today as we study our text, my hope is that we will understand that yes, we will all die someday. And it's my plan for us to, to see the importance of talking about, of thinking about death, not ignoring it. But it's also my desire that today, that, that through Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and what God's Word has to say, that we will be able to do what, what the movie Patch Adams was unable to do, and that is to offer a hope even in death. So let's dive right in and see in verses 1 through 6 of our text uh, how the preacher brings death directly into the spotlight. In verses 1 through 6 of this, and he brings it directly into the spotlight as the great equalizer, which is point number one. Death is the great equalizer. It's even the heading of our text that death comes to all. 
There's a reason that death is referred to as the death that all men pay. Because indeed, it is unavoidable. Each and every one of us can, can bank on it that we will die someday. There is no exception to this. No matter how much kale you eat, no matter how many miles you run, no matter how many vitamins you take, you will die. You are not going to thwart death by those means. And even beyond that, being a righteous person, doing what is morally right, honoring God in your life, makes no difference with regards to whether or not you will die here on earth. That is a fact. That is a reality that each and every one of us, in Christ or not, will pay. Things cannot stop this from coming. Each and every one of us is going to die, which is why it's the great equalizer. No one gets out of it. The rich, the poor, they die. The, the black, the white, the Hispanic, they die. The, the male, the female, the tall, the short, whatever. Each and every one of us dies. And this is a great evil. That's why the author tells us in verse 3, he says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. And he's right. Death is a great evil. It truly is a great evil. He goes on in verse 3 to point out why it is that it's an evil thing. As he continues in verse 3, he says, Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. The preacher understands the truth of why it is that we die, because the preacher has read Genesis chapter 3. He knows that death is in fact a product of the fall. Death is a product of sin. Both Christians and non-Christians alike die because of the effects of sin on the world, because of the effects of sin on humanity. This is the fact. And this is why I am of the opinion that, that funerals, be it a funeral home, a memorial service, is not a time for rejoicing. It is not a time for joy and laughter. It is not a time for celebration. You hear people say these things, right? They'll say, well, I don't want any flowers at my funeral. I want balloons. Or, or, well, we're not crying over so-and-so's death because we know where they're at. And, and I grant you that, that we can and we do have hope we are in Christ that death is not the end for us. But when we go to a funeral, when we go to a memorial service, when we are, are thinking on these things, we recognize that that person is dead as a product of sin. It is a graphic reminder for us of the reality of sin and the seriousness of sin. The preacher continues this discussion on death in verses 4 and 5 by pointing out that the living, though, have an advantage over the dead in a certain way. Look at verse 4, what he says. He says, But he who is joined to the living, or excuse me, he who is joined to the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. What, what does the author mean by this comparison, that a living dog is better than a, than a dead lion? Well, consider this. As you think about Animals that are, that are powerful, that are majestic, that are these great, magnificent creatures, are you more likely to think of a lion or to think of a dog? Most likely, we're, we're more likely to think of a lion, right? As this majestic, this powerful creature, this strong creature that can, that can survive, that can make it, that can, that can do things in this world. We're more likely to think of a lion, especially when you consider, as, as the author of Ecclesiastes is writing here, we have to consider how dogs were viewed, especially in this time period, because dogs uh, in this time were especially considered just more of a, of a nuisance animal, living as scavengers on the street. They were dirty. They were filthy. They, they were not a, a desired animal. They were almost like, like rats 
or, or rodents that they just were there. It was just like, oh yeah, there's dogs in the street. You know, it's just it's what they do. They were seen as dirty and unwanted. It, it's almost like for those of us who have been to uh, to Kathmandu uh, in Nepal, you go to a place like Kathmandu or other third world countries and, and places, and you see just like dogs roaming the street everywhere. You know, just everywhere, and they're dirty and they're nasty and they're mangy. Like they're not when you think of like your little fluffy dog at home, Fido. It's not like that when you see these dogs just roaming the street, eating just garbage off the street and, and just dirty and, and nasty. And that's the way dogs were viewed in this time. They were viewed in that way. Dogs were not well thought of. In fact, it would be a great insult for you to call someone a dog in this time, even more so than today. That's why Goliath uh, said to the Israelites, right, whenever David came to fight him, he says, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? He was using it like a, like a an insult. What am I, a dog? Who would who would desire to be a dog? So clearly, the the lion is a far more superior animal in this way to the dog. Yet, as the preacher points out, a living dog is far better than a dead lion. If you go to the zoo and you've got your option to see dogs or lions, you're probably going to go see the lion, right? But if you go to the lion's cage and there is a dead lion in the cage, you're probably going to be like, well, let's go look at the dogs. At least they're alive and doing something. There is an advantage that the dog has if he's alive, even if he is a lesser animal, even if he is not as majestic, not as powerful. He still has the advantage because he is alive. But what's interesting here is that the advantage that we have of being alive is that we can think about death. Isn't that interesting? It's what the writer says. He says in verse 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, for they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. He says the reason the living have an advantage is because the living know that they will die. It almost sounds ironic, doesn't it? That like, ah, I'm alive. I have an advantage over the dead because I can think about death. It almost sounds like, like irony to, to say something like that. But the fact of the matter is that we can and we should consider and operate according to the fact that we will all die. The fact that we can consider our own mortality, we consider the fact that we will die, should have an effect on how we live, should have an effect on the decisions that we make. The question then is, how do we operate accordingly? How do we live, how do we make decisions in light of the fact that we know we will die, and we can consider this thing. Well, the immediate answer that we see in our text is that we should enjoy the life we have here on earth, which is point number two. We should enjoy the life that we have. It's what the writer tells us, the preacher says in, in verses 7 through 10. There's a kind of, of reasoning as we read a, a text like this, especially reading heavily about death, and, and especially a lot of past things that the preacher has said, talking about all his vanity and and it, whether you're, you're a good person, guess what? Sometimes bad things happen to you, and sometimes good things happen to bad people, and there's injustice. And, and we read all these things, and then we read the reality that, okay, we all die, every single one of us. There's not a single person getting out of it. There is a type of reasoning that would lead some at this point into a, a, a sort of fatalism that, that just wants to throw up our hands and say, well, then why does it even matter? Since we're all going to die anyway, whether we do good or whether we do evil, and let's just give it up now, because nothing really matters. Like the Queen song, nothing really matters at all. But that's not the approach that the preacher takes. In fact, he takes the exact opposite approach. 
The preacher looks at the reality of death with a proper eternal perspective and says to enjoy the things that this life has to offer. He says to enjoy eating bread, eat bread with joy and drink wine with a merry heart. This is not wrong for Christians to do. In fact, it is right, it is good for Christians to enjoy the things of this life. It is right for us to do that. Christians are, are called, and in fact, he says, what does he say? That this is approved by God in verse 7. He says, for God has already approved what you do. See, the reality is that the Christians should be experiencing the most joy, the most happiness, enjoying the good things that God has given us, not rejecting them, not, not pushing them away. And now this gets to something that, that is a pet peeve of mine, and it's been a pet peeve of mine with the church for a long time. And it's the fact that there are many Christians today that walk around in life gloomy, down, almost depressed. They walk around like they're just supposed to be serious all the time, like fun is a product of the fall, like holiness means abstaining from anything that is pleasurable, anything that is fun, anything that we can enjoy. And we all know these people. We've seen them walking around. We've seen them in churches that we've been to. And it's like, I don't get it. Like, aren't you the one that has access to the creator of the universe? Isn't that something to be joyful about? Like, God has created these things. I told you here in Ecclesiastes and other places. Enjoy these things. Use bread and wine and, and the good things of life, your wife, marriage, all of these things, and enjoy them. Find joy in these things. This is good for you. And, and there's so many people that walk around and just don't get it. They, they literally act like if you are having fun, you're probably not holy. You're probably not pursuing God the way you should. You're just having a little too much fun. I had somebody tell me one time whenever I was growing up, nothing good happens after 11 p.m. You know, what? That's his, that's his beauty. Only sinful things happen then. Anything going on after 11, no, you should be in bed. Alone, not with anyone else. And this, this, this bothers me, and this is true. In fact, uh, research has shown, and, and interview after interview with restaurant worker has, has demonstrated, that you know when the, the most undesirable time if you work in a restaurant to work is? A Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoon is the most undesired time to work in a restaurant because that's when the Sunday uh, after church crowd shows up. And the Sunday after church crowd has a reputation of being grumpy, short, angry, irritable, more likely to complain, less likely to tip. As I was preparing for my sermon, I just wanted to see like what kind of things that people said about, about this, this church crowd that shows up. And, and, and in fact, some people call it the punishment hour. Like, if you're having to work that time of day, it's probably because you did something wrong and you're being punished. And just, you could, I went on to this, I found this forum. It was like a, a, a forum where these waiters were, were essentially telling about their experiences with the after-church crowd on Sundays. And it was post after post after post of, of these people are rude, these people are hateful, these people are grumpy. It's, it's the least favorite time to work. And, I worked at McDonald's for, for four and a half years, and I can tell you, it is the worst time to work. I hated working on Sunday afternoons. People would come through and just complain and gripe as they're dressed in their Sunday best, their suit and tie, or, or sometimes even wearing t 
t-shirts that talk about Jesus or, or, or God's love. And it's, what a shame this is. That this is the reputation that the church has in the world. As the grumpy people that go to the restaurant after church. We did a, a, a sort of a campaign whenever I was uh, in youth group at First Southern Baptist Church where um, we, we were going through this, this series about, about joy. And the fact of the matter is, if we are in Christ, right, we, more than anyone else, have a reason to be joyful. We have a reason to smile. We have a reason to be happy. Like, we have a, we are a new creation. The old man has passed away. The things that we deserve because of our sin has been taken by Christ on the cross. And we now are in covenant relationship with the creator of the universe, the author of joy. And people say this in church, and we, we know that this is a reality, uh, but uh, what needed to happen is that people needed to notify their face of this reality. And we started this campaign called Notify Your Face. We had t-shirts and everything. And encouraging people, hey, if you are in Christ, then you should be joyful. You have a reason to smile. Notify your face of the good things in life that you have. This is the reality for Christians, that we should be the most joyful, the most pleasant, the most fun people to be around because we have the most to be joyful about. We should be enjoying life more than anyone else. We personally know and have covenant relationship with the author and creator of joy. The one who created everything on earth with the intention that we enjoy it. He created it for us, for our pleasure. For us to use and enjoy. Not to abstain from or to push away from. That's why in verse 7 he says, God has already approved what you do. So instead of saying, like some would do as they read Ecclesiastes, instead of saying, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That would be a bad way of interpreting this text. That, that would be fatalism. Let's just... Live it up now, because tomorrow we're going to die, and so it's going to all be over. That's it. Ruling the correct view, I think, was, was put into words well by Dr. Russell Moore in a tweet where he said, Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead, and today we are alive. There's the reason for joy. Christians should be far more joyful in this world than anyone else, because we are alive in Christ. God likes it when we enjoy the good gifts that he's given us. This also includes the work that we do here on earth. Notice that the, the, the preacher says in verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This demonstrates for us the fact that that work is not a product of the fall. Contrary to what many people think as they go into work on Monday morning, you are not going into work because of the fall. Work was created by God in the beginning. Genesis 1, Genesis 1 and 2. God put man and, and woman in the garden to, to work it. That is why they were there, to attend to the garden. Work is not a product of the fall. In fact, we can find joy in our work. We were created for work from the beginning, and there is joy and pleasure to be had in working. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ. In our text in verse 10, he says, uh, for there is 
no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now, I want to make clear, when he says the word Sheol here, Sheol does not just refer to, to hell. In fact, in this context, it's, it's purely referring to when you're dead. Sheol, the place of the dead. So he is not saying that, like, all of us are going to hell. Uh, he is just saying, once you're dead, all of that here on earth, it, it's in. And end it. It's over. I just wanted to make that clear. But what we do in this life, the decisions we make have eternal impact. And a right understanding of eternity has an impact on the way we live here on this earth. And it leads us to joy and happiness and pleasure in Christ and in the things he's given us. Finally, point number three. And here the preacher concludes this chapter by talking about the value of wisdom. And this almost seems to me like, uh, when, I, when I first read this passage, like much of Ecclesiastes, it seems like, okay, where's he going now? And it seems like he's completely shifted gears, like, talk about death, talk about the way we should live in light of death, now wisdom. And it, and it seems almost like, what? why did he just shift gears? He just like took an immediate right turn and it's going a different direction now. Uh, but I think as we, as we read and we understand that we'll see that point number three tells us that the goodness of wisdom regards life and death. So it gives an example of wisdom in verse 13 through 16. It says this, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than life, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. In this example, we see two things that are true. We see, first of all, that this man's wisdom was far more valuable than some other guy's strength, some other guy's might. Because, I mean, his wisdom prevented even the need for might, the need for strength. No one even had to, to go and fight because of his wisdom. Clearly, it overcame. It was more valuable. We see first that this man's wisdom was more valuable than strength. But second, we see that this wisdom, though more valuable, does not lead to fame or recognition many times. Think about it here. Think about if perhaps this great warrior that lived in this town were to come forward and say, I will fight the battle for us. And, and he achieved victory for his hometown, which would have likely been very impossible considering, the, as we were told, the great siege works that were coming against this, this small town. But if he had been successful and he had achieved the victory, he would have been known and famous throughout the land, probably for a long time. Legends would have been told of this guy. He would have been very well known, achieved fame, recognition, all of those things. But the outcome of, 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 the, of what actually happened with this wise man it eliminated the need for any fighting, and the outcome was the same. That the town was, was saved by the, by the wisdom of this man. And yet, what do we see? That his wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. It goes unnoticed, it goes unheard. The, the way to, to fame and fortune, oftentimes, is not done this way here in this world. In fact, that's a part of what makes wisdom so valuable to the godly. Because it usually goes directly against human pride. 
The Bible would indicate, for example, that the wise listen far more than they talk, right? That's what James tells us in James 1.19. And people do not usually get lots of fame, lots of recognition uh, by not talking, right? Uh, we see that demonstrated in our public sphere right now. The people that get the most attention are the people that are saying the most and usually saying the most outrageous and foolish things. Wisdom usually, in most cases, doesn't lead to fame. It doesn't lead to, to fortune. It doesn't lead to, to recognition. Look at verse 17 even. The words of the wise are heard, excuse, heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Notice who the ruler is in this situation. It's not the quiet wise one, right? Rather, it's the loud fool. Now, obviously, this is not a, this is not a universal truth. There have been situations, examples, where someone who is very wise has a place of, of fame, recognition, standing, sure, sure. That's not a universal thing that no one who is wise ever gets anywhere in this world. But the fact remains that, that the desire of the wise is not for the sake of fame, recognition, but for the sake of wisdom, for the sake of what's right, for the sake of what is good. In this case, for the sake of what is better. As we begin to close, I want us to think about this passage through the lens of this last section on wisdom. Here's where I think this, this idea of, of the importance of wisdom, that wisdom is indeed better than folly, comes in handy. Because it would seem like this portion has nothing to do with the rest of the chapter, but in actuality we see a continual theme of death even into this section. We see in the, in the section, uh, in the, excuse me, verses 11 and 12, what does he say? He says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. We see here again, first of all, the reality that we've already seen in Ecclesiastes, that there is injustice. The people that deserve to win the race, the swift, oftentimes don't win the race. The ones who deserve to win the battle, the strong, oftentimes don't win the battle. Bread is not always to the wise, riches not always to the intelligent, favor to the ones with knowledge. But the one thing that happens is that all die. Time and chance happen to them all. And he describes death in verse 12 as this event that it happens like that, like a fish caught in a net, like a bird caught in a snare. Think about it. If a fish knew, okay, I see a net, and I'm swimming into it, and I'm about to be caught, he would turn back, right? I mean, the fish wouldn't swim into the net unless the net caught him by surprise. Happened quick, happened fast. And at that point, there's nothing he can do about it. The same with a bird being caught in a snare. A bird doesn't want to be in a snare. It happens, and then it's over. And they don't see it coming. There's nothing they can do once it has happened. So the question I want us to consider today is how does a wise person think about death? And here's what I believe the answer is. The wise person thinks about death regularly and thinks about it hopefully. The preacher's already told us in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes about his wisdom, how wise he is, how, how smart he is, that he has sought after wisdom. He's pursued it, and in fact, he's gained it. Very, very wise. And all throughout the book, as we see, it is a reoccurring theme for him to talk about death. 
He considers death over and over again. Matt has already done a whole sermon on death. And yet here we are again, talking about death. The importance of being at a place of mourning and how that's better over being a place of feasting. This must mean that a wise person thinks about death regularly because this wise person has brought it up for us frequently. And I think this is part of why he says in chapter 7 that the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of learning. It's healthy for us. It's good for us to be reminded of our limited time here on earth. It's good for us to be confronted with the reality of death so that, as we have already read, we can have the advantage of thinking about it, of preparing for it, of being ready. I think about the parable that Jesus told of the ten virgins. But when the bridegroom was coming, they, they went to go wait for the bridegroom. And some of them had prepared their lamps with oil. And some of them hadn't. And they fell asleep. And all of a sudden, the bridegroom was there. He had come. And the ones who had no oil, what did they do? They said to the others, hey, give us some of your oil so that we can, so that we can join. So that we can be a part of the bridegroom. And they said, sorry, I don't have enough for you and me. And the ones that were unprepared had no oil were left. They weren't ready. They weren't expecting it. They weren't thinking in light of the fact that their time here on earth was limited. That was an important lesson for us. Notice how the preacher, though, does not expect us to live our lives depressed because we know we're going to die. Instead, he teaches us to be joyful and merry while we're here. Because if we are in Christ, we have no reason to fear death. We have no reason to be depressed by death. We have no reason to lose out on joy because of death. Because we are in covenant relationship with the author and creator of joy, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And he has secured for us, through his work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, an eternity of joy and prosperity with him once we die. We know then that death is not the end for us. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Because death has no victory over us. We have victory over death in Christ. Because of, the, because of his resurrection, we too will be resurrected like him. I encourage you, if you struggle with a fear of death and you are in Christ, you need to go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You will be encouraged. There's no way you can read that and not go, thank you, Jesus. And if you're not in Christ, you have a good reason to fear death. And I would encourage you, the first step in wisdom is to submit to Christ. Is to repent of your sin. Put your faith and trust in Him. This will lead us to enjoy the earthly blessings more and remind us of the value of life. But this is only true for those of us who are in Christ. I love what one theologian said while he was counseling someone on the topic of, of fearing death. And we'll close with this. He pointed them to Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. It says this. He said, instead of trying to stop thinking about death, every time that death comes into your head, Say to death, go ahead, death, make my day. Say, if you let me live, Christ will be honored in my life. And if you take my life away, 
I will get more of Christ in heaven. I cannot lose. Then he says, go on with your work, make a meal, vacuum a rug, close a real estate deal, give a flu shot, go about your daily life with a total happy uncertainty about when you will die. In Christ, we have hope, even in death. Let's pray. God, I thank you so, so much for the truth that we have revealed to us. Ecclesiastes 9 and 1 Corinthians 15. Lord, that as we consider, rightly so, Lord, as we consider death and the reality that it is for each and every one of us, I pray today, Lord, that each and every person in here would be able to say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? That we would be able to look death in the face and say, Go ahead, death, make my day. Lord, for anyone in here today who that is not their reality, who that is, that is not what they can say. They, in fact, are in fear of death, wondering what comes next. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would remove their heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, that your Holy Spirit would go forward and do the work of regeneration in their heart, that they might believe today and be saved and have hope and life eternal.